Now we're reading again in the New Testament and the Gospel according to John chapter 7. Uh, for those of you who are visitors or new, we are engaged in a series on John's Gospel in these mornings, um, not doing the whole Gospel. Uh, were we to do that, uh, all time would not uh, permit us uh, to play off what John says about uh, Jesus at the end of the gospel. Um, and one of the things we've noticed among many things is that John has a fascination with when things happen. And he's very distinct as a gospel writer. Every single chapter in John's gospel will tell you at some place when something happened. And we've taken that as a kind of uh, series of punctuation marks. It's uh, just a happenstance in many ways, but many of these moments are hugely significant, and it's these moments that we're looking at. And John chapter 7 uh, brings us to the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or as we would say today, tents, when the, the people of God in one of these major feasts uh, would decamp Remembering what happened in the days of the wilderness, they would kind of reenact the experience. And uh, no doubt some of the children would say to their fathers if they were going up to Jerusalem for this feast, Dad, is this, is this the camping feast? And they would build little booths for themselves and they would stay in them for a week, uh, just re-experiencing what it was like in the wilderness wanderings 40 years without actually living in a house. So, John chapter 7, if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1071. I'm going to read the first section and then the central section from verse 37. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You need to uh, sense that they're being deeply cynical here. They're being deeply cynical here. If you want to get killed, go to Jerusalem and get killed. And the clue to that is in the words that follow in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. How sore that must have been incidentally. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And then On the last day of the feast, verse 37, so Jesus arrives around the middle of the feast and begins teaching on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John, the author of this fourth gospel, was a great composer, and as we've seen in the past, he begins the composition, the symphony on the life of Jesus with an overture. And in the overture, he gives us hints as to who Jesus is. Uh, It's really ways of saying to us, when you read this gospel, look out for these things to reappear. Jesus, for example, is the one who has made all things, and therefore in the gospel, he shows himself as the one who remakes all things. Jesus is the one who has come into the world he has made, and yet the world he has made doesn't recognize him. And so, there is this theme running through the gospel that his own people don't recognize him, and eventually they reject him. There is the theme of Jesus being seen in his glory, John has told us from chapter 2 onwards, as Jesus does these signs, He is showing His glory. And then there is a very key statement John makes. The law, the Torah, the story of the first five books of the Bible came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ doesn't mean there was no grace in the Old Testament, no grace of God shown in the book of Moses. It was full of grace, but it wasn't the, the real thing, as it were. It was only a picture. It was only a taste. So, the law, the Torah, came through Moses and all that Moses and the people experienced. But all that Moses and the people experienced was simply a kind of working model of what would be experienced and found in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus Christ stands at the center of John's gospel. He writes it 
so that those who have never seen Jesus will come to believe in Jesus. And at the same time, John is a great portrait painter. You don't know much about art. You go into an art gallery and you maybe go in several days in a row and you find the same person staring at a great painting and you wonder what he sees. But he knows enough about painting to be able to tell what the artist is doing. And John's gospel is a portrait of Jesus produced by a great artist who had thought much about his subject. And like many great portrait painters, uh, maybe you can imagine a portrait that you've seen, and in the background, there are all kinds of little scenes being painted in way in the background, perhaps the great house in which he lived, or, or a description of an event in which he took place. And if you know a little about him, all of these are signposts. They're, they're pointing towards the central figure, and they're explaining who he is and what he has done. And no gospel is so full of background pictures that help us to understand Jesus as the gospel according to John. It simply abounds in these pictures in the background that in quiet voices are saying, do you see who he is? Do you see what I'm really saying about him? And just at this point in the gospel, what John is saying is, do you see how things came through Moses that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ? And he's speaking about the feasts, the, the weekly feast in chapter 5 of the Sabbath day. Do you see how it pointed to Jesus? And then the, the great feast of Passover, which is in the background in chapter 6, an event that takes place at Passover time. Do you see that the Passover, the exodus from Egypt and the Passover was, it was really pointing to Jesus, the manna that was given in the wilderness, the bread that came down from heaven. It was really, it was like a working model, a picture to help people understand how God would save them. And Jesus shows himself not only to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath feast, but the fulfillment of the Passover feast and the feasts in the wilderness. I am the bread of life, and I give myself for the life of the world. And he tells us right at the beginning now that we've, we've moved on to the camping feast, feast of tabernacles, great feast in the year, lasts for a week, ends with a great Sabbath day. And uh, his disciples saying, go up and, you know, if you want to get killed, go there and get killed. He says, I'm not going, presumably means I'm not going just now. I'm not going in your time. I'm not here to listen to what you say. And later on in the week, he goes and he begins teaching. And then as the teaching develops, uh, Jesus is set in relief against the background of this Feast of Tabernacles, the people living in tents and experiencing all kinds of things during the wilderness wanderings. And one of them lies at the very center of this chapter. I want to say three things, the first two quickly, 
because they're really very contemporaneously relevant to us. The first is that running through this chapter, there is mounting opposition to the Lord Jesus. There is mounting opposition to the Lord Jesus. We're only a third of the way through the gospel, and yet clearly the pressure on Him is growing, or perhaps to put it the other way and more accurate way around, His pressure on people is growing, and it's producing in them an opposition. He speaks in this chapter about the fact people want to kill Him. People say, you've got a demon. It's ridiculous. The whole chapter unfolds that behind the scenes there is a kind of conspiracy going on in order to get rid of Jesus. It's actually a very relevant little insight, that, isn't it? Most people did not know what was going on behind the scenes, but the conspiracy, it was there, and the purpose to get rid of Jesus. There's a something very contemporaneous about that, isn't there? Um, Why is it that if you say Winston Churchill, nobody winces? But if you say Jesus, it sometimes seems as though all hell has been let loose, and you think, what's going on here behind the scenes? And what's going on here behind the scenes, you see it right at the beginning of the chapter, and it runs through the whole of the chapter. You can read through the chapter and see this. What's going on behind the scenes is that the pressure of Jesus' presence is producing opposition. The pressure of Jesus' presence is producing opposition. And it's here in the Gospels And as we learn from John's gospel, if it's true of Jesus, it will be true of you if you're a Christian. There will be pressure on you because the presence of Jesus Christ in your life inevitably produces a kind of pressure on others. John Calvin has a great way of putting this. He says, the sun shines. When the sun shines, things grow but also when the sun shines, some things produce a stench. It draws forth what is latently present. And this is what is happening here, this increased sense of opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ that is behind the surface. But we need to make no mistake either in our own lives as Christians or with our sense of the preaching of the gospel, that the presence of Jesus Christ is the cause of pressure on people's lives. And either it will soften them or it will harden them. So there's a great lesson for us there to learn. But there's also something else, not only mounting opposition to the Lord Jesus and His ministry, but paradoxically at the same time, and this is also very contemporaneous, widespread confusion about his identity. Now, you'd think, surely these two things don't go together, but running through the passage, you'll notice there's, there's all kinds of confusion about who Jesus is. To begin with, in his own home, his brothers don't believe in him. Then verse 12, people are, are muttering about him. Who is he? How is he doing these things? Verse 15, the Jews are questioning who he is. 
Verses 26 and 27, the people in Jerusalem are saying, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They're wondering who he is. And verses 40 to 43, near the end of the chapter, all kinds of views about him. Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Can he come from Galilee? Question after question after question after question. I think between verse 11 and verse 52, there are 19 question marks. And many of them bespeak. It isn't that it's not clear who Jesus is. It's not that it's not clear who he is. It is that along with opposition to Jesus, there will always be confusion about his identity. Something very contemporaneous about that as well, isn't it? You will notice the amount of opposition there is to Jesus, uh, but if instead of becoming the person questioned, you become the questioner, what do you discover? In almost every single case, these people who are opposed to Jesus are totally confused about who Jesus really is. You say, well, just tell me, just take me through one of the Gospels that you've obviously studied so carefully. Can you explain to me Paul's letter to the Romans? Our series in John is an interruption of the series on Romans. Just you, you who know so much about Jesus Christ, tell me what's in Romans. Almost complete ignorance. And that is not just, as it were, the people who read the gutter press. That's the people who have some of the highest positions in intelligentsia in our country, highest positions in politics in our country, completely confused about who Jesus is. At best, making up their own Jesus, saying such foolish things as how I like to think about Jesus is. And it was the same then. And it's interesting what they focus on. It's very interesting what these people focus on. He's the Sabbath breaker. It's almost laughable, isn't it? You think of all that Jesus has done. Remember a couple of chapters ago, he said to a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, pick up your bed, pick up your mat, and go home. And there he's walking along with his mat, and the, the Jews pounce on him. Sabbath breaker, Sabbath breaker. He says, the man who healed me told me to do this. Sabbath breaker, Sabbath breaker. All they see is the mat under his arm. What do they not see? Well, they don't see what's becoming increasingly clear in John's gospel and is referred to in the other gospels that rather than being the Sabbath breaker, Jesus is the Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. And it's in Jesus that that poor man had found rest, wholeness. Remember how Jesus, he puts this in a nutshell in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, which if you're an Episcopalian, you'll know as the comfortable words of our Lord Jesus. Come to me and find rest. That doesn't mean come to Jesus and have a little nap. It means come to Jesus and you will discover that all that that Sabbath commandment pointed towards of inner spiritual rest for your souls is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, in this church, that's why the Christian Sabbath turns out to be the best day of the week. 
Whereas if you were kind of merely at best religious, it would be, you know, one of the most burdensome days of the week. Got to go again. Long sermons. All these hymns. Do our duty. It's fascinating, isn't it? The degree of opposition to Jesus who offers in himself the very blessing that we all need. And these, of course, are simply the preliminary efforts. The the Jews send a, a gang of fellows to arrest him, and they come back and they're asked, so why did you not arrest him? And you, know, you remember what their answer is? We didn't read it this morning. It's in verse 46. We went to arrest him, but what he said arrested us. So the big question is, what did Jesus say that arrested people? And the answer is in verses 37 to 39. What he said on the last day of the feast. So there's mounting opposition against Jesus' ministry, there's confusion about Jesus' identity, and then there's this wonderful imitation, invitation to find in Jesus living water for our thirsty souls. It takes place on the last day of the feast. Now, We'll get the picture a bit better if we remember that on this feast, they reenacted things that reminded them of the wilderness wanderings. And one of the things that happened in this feast was that the the people would gather in the temple, which was a substantial space, and then they would go down with at least one of the priests, perhaps more, to the pool of Siloam where the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam reminding the people of the words of Isaiah that we would draw water from the wells of salvation in the day when the Messiah came. And then they would climb back up to the temple singing, reciting verses from Scripture, reciting that verse from Isaiah, and they they would walk round the altar, and the priest would pour out that water into the base of the altar. And they would do this every single day. And it, it created its own pressure because it was a, it was a symbol of, of inner longing for the Messiah to come and to, and to give them living water, to quench their thirsty souls. And then on the last day of the feast, they would, they would do it one more time, but this time when they came to the altar, they would, they would go round it like they had gone round Jericho when they'd enter into the land seven times. So, this kind of mounting uh, expression of longing for, for heavenly water that would quench their spiritual thirst. And uh, it's not absolutely clear here whether the last day was that day or whether it was the great Sabbath day that immediately followed it. If it was the last day, it was a day of high excitement. If it was the day that followed it, it was, a, it was a day of relative quiet. And what did Jesus do? He raised his voice. Um, I think apart from him crying out on the cross, 
This is probably the only point in the Gospels where Jesus is said to raise his voice. So this is fairly important, isn't it? Well, what did he say? Well, think about, think about what they had been reenacting. Now he says, listen, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The law came through Moses. The wilderness wanderings were under the leadership of Moses. When the people were thirsty and Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and the water flowed out, it was all a it was all physical. And this feast was all physical, but it had a deep spiritual longing, a thirst at its heart. And Jesus says, if you are really thirsty, if you are longing for what this feast is looking towards, then it's already here. If anyone is thirsty, he says, then let him come to me and drink. Now, you'll notice the verse that follows, and if you've got really good eyesight and uh, a modern translation, you may see a little footnote, and uh, I want to just explain what's going on here. There are two ways to translate the words that follow. Why are there two ways that to translate the words that follow? We, we're trying to sing some of the songs this morning. Did you notice how some of the words, you know, get cut off at the top? Or there's, there's a letter missing because this screen is really four screens. Now, you didn't have any difficulty, did you, uh, reading the words? But imagine there was no punctuation. Because originally the New Testament was written virtually no punctuation. Incidentally, if you're still at school, that's not an excuse. <laughs> Learn to use the apostrophe. And it's not so clear as it. You can usually get it, but it's not so clear. I have a favorite illustration of this from the, the village where our home is. It's at the, the village hall. And there are six words on a sign. Let me read them slowly. Parking for hall complex users only. Okay, some of you don't know. You have no idea what's going on here. Because what it clearly means is parking for hall complex users only. No, it doesn't mean that. It means parking for hall complex users only. Now, you can't tell that from the words. You can't tell that from the punctuation marks. The problem is there are no punctuation marks. So, what do you tell it from? Tell it from the, the big picture. You kind of look around and you, and you work it out. And it's the same with this verse. And it's the reason why I think if you've got a modern Bible, the translation that's at the bottom of the page is probably the better way to understand what Jesus is saying, which would be, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let him drink who believes in me. As the Scriptures have said, 
out of his heart, that is, out of Jesus' heart, will flow these rivers of living water. Why do I say that? Um, First of all, because there is no Scripture in the Bible that actually says this. There's no verse that says this. So, John here is pointing back to pictures in the Scriptures that are being fulfilled. So, what is the picture in the Scriptures that's being fulfilled? Well, one of them very clearly from the New Testament is that rock in the wilderness that Moses smote and the the water ran out. And isn't it interesting, in John's gospel, John describes how when Jesus had been crucified, a soldier put a spear into his side and for no apparent reason says, out of his side came blood and water. Blood that cleanses from sin. Water. And you notice what John says here. He was speaking here about the Holy Spirit who literally was not yet, that means hadn't yet been given to the church as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. And here's this wonderful truth of the gospel, that this thirst-quenching water that comes through the gift of Jesus' Spirit to those who trust in Him comes to us from the rock that was smitten, from the Savior who was crucified. There's much more to it, I think, than that, but we don't have time to go into it all. But you see what Jesus is saying. He is saying, when you come and trust in me, when the Spirit is given, my own Holy Spirit, that's who I'll give to you, the Spirit who is on my life, who has been with me through these years, I will do nothing less than give you the Holy Spirit who was my dearest and closest companion through these 33 years. And when He comes as you trust in me, your thirst will really be satisfied. And this, of course, is against the background of many Old Testament sayings, as, for example, those of Jeremiah. God's people have dug their own cisterns and forsaken the fountain of living water. And in a way, that's the big issue, isn't it? Digging our own cisterns, finding our own water supply to relieve the thirst, the spiritual thirst that we have by nature that can never be satisfied by the waters of this world, that can only find their relief in the love, the the work, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the old hymn, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life, lasting joy. Lord Jesus, found in Thee.
or in the words of Horatius Bonner, who preached in this very building so long ago, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me. Come to me, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. Your thirst quenched. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived, and now I live in Him. What a picture. What a portrait. Because what a Savior. Is He yours? You're drinking, thirst being satisfied, life being transformed. Let's drink from Him today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and for all that He is to us, for these many different angles from which John invites us to view the portrait of him that he paints for us. Help us, we pray, to trust in him and to find our thirsty souls satisfied. So we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, dear friends, usually when our minister David Robertson ends up in hospital, he gives us no warning but we, we have warning. David is expecting to go into hospital this week, and uh, God willing, we'll have very important surgery uh, this coming Friday. And I'm going to ask David if he'll come up, and elders who would like to join me at the front, we're going to pray for him together and commit him and those who will care for him to the Lord. Uh, churches are sometimes like bicycle wheels. You know, you know the spokes that you know, you do things with or, or sit beside you. The difference about being the minister is you're, you're like part of the hub. And some of the spikes actually go right through you, and others are joined to you uh, very closely. And so that's why we want to take this special step today of praying for our beloved minister. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that He is exalted at your right hand. And according to your word, He has given gifts to men, and through them gifts to the church, some to be pastors and teachers. We bless you that you have given our brother David to us as our pastor, our faithful shepherd, who has loved us, cared for us, at times pursued us, helped us, and through the ministry of your word, you have spoken to us again and again and again. We want to embrace him for the love of the Lord Jesus that you have shown to us in him, for his example to the flock that he has loved, for the ways in which he has put himself, body and mind and soul, into the upbuilding of St. Peter's. And now we pray for him and for this frail body and ask that your hand would be upon him, upon his mind. We pray that you would keep him according to your promise in perfect peace as his mind is stayed upon you. We pray that this will be a gift to him, not something that he has conjured up, 
or worked in, but a gift from you, the peace of God that passes all understanding, keeping his heart and mind in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus. We pray, our Father, for the medical and surgical team who will care for him, that they will have great wisdom and skill, and that they may experience realities beyond the normal, because this is a patient surrounded by your presence and upborne by our prayers. We pray you would ease the way and that it would please you to make the surgery successful and that you would restore David, that all that he experiences in these days may be another investment from your hand in his life for the sake of his ministry, not only to us, but to so many throughout the world. And so as, uh, as brother elders who love him, we commit him to you. As a congregation that loves him, we commit him to you. And Annabelle and the others in the family as they watch and wait. And we pray you would keep our brother and that you would gain for our Lord Jesus yet more glory through him. So here our prayer, Lord, and our cries for his blessing and for our blessing. Be pleased to be merciful to us all. And then we pray that we may trust in you and act faith in you and your providential care of us and receive every gift from your hand. We ask this. Pray you would forgive all of our sins and our failures. Help us, we pray, to love you and one another more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is Amazing Grace. <laughs>